here with you guys. Just decided to stay down today. Mostly because I had my coffee. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm excited about this series, The One Another's. Um, I'm excited because I'm, I'm being moved and pressed in this scriptures. Um, I'm excited because I'm seeing so much more than I thought I would out of this series. Um, and I, I, I'm really looking forward to what the year is going to unfold for us as we walk through this idea of one another together. Um, we're going to be in Romans 12 today um, as a, a text for where we're at today. But I really want to kind of give us a little bit of a sense of where we are when we get to Romans 12. I think most of us in the room, if I mention Romans 12, what would be the verses that you would think of? Maybe you can't quote them, but where would you think we'd be going to? 1 and 2. Romans 1 and 2 are just strong, strong verses in the in the faith. They, they really challenge us about living sacrificially and about what it means to live for the Lord. And they're, they're, they're some of the greatest challenges we have. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I want to give you a context up to this idea of sacrificing our lives as an offering to the Lord. Um, if you come to this idea that, that Paul was writing to the church at Rome. Rome was the seat of government in the world. Um, it would be Rome would be almost like if you put New York City and Washington D.C. together. Not only was it the governmental ruling body, it was the mecca of of the business world as well. Um, it, everything flowed out of Rome. Um, all, all roads lead to Rome was the Roman um, mantra of, of the Roman Empire. Um, you may, may or may not know that, that one of the reasons why God chose, according to Scripture, um, God says that he, he was going to wait to send his son until the exact perfect time to send him. And he sent them, he sent Jesus to be born of a virgin in Jerusalem in the middle of the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons that, that you can draw a conclusion is that because at that time was one of the first times in history that mankind could reach the then known world. Now, there were people in other parts of the world that were um, what they call the barbarian parts of the world. Um, they were clans, and they kind of, but what we would consider the modern world was the Roman Empire um, that was, you know, such a, a huge influence. And they built literally roadways. They were they were tremendous at at making things accessible for their empire. One of the reasons was because their army could travel on those roads and conquer and control. And so that was one of the reasons why that happened. So as Paul's writing this church in Rome, he's writing to this 
metropolitan, worldly city, a church that's in the middle of that. Now, the church was not like the church is today. Uh, mostly it was in homes. There were some who were attached to the synagogue where the, the word of Christ had come in to the, the Jewish synagogue and they saw Christ as the Redeemer and they, they were there trying to walk that out before the other Jews that didn't see it, but that usually was rejected fairly quickly. You can see some of that in uh, the writings of Corinthians. Well, if you go through Acts, you'll see it in some of the places like Galatia and um, what's another, I'm trying to think of another city off the top of my head. In the book of Acts, if you're reading through Paul's adventures as he's going out, you'll see that these these Jewish believers began to believe and they would try to attach themselves to the to the, the synagogue and they would usually get run off from the synagogue or persecuted by the Jews that would not believe. So you have this metropolitan area where where Judaism has some realm of influence and this new thing of Christianity, following Christ as the Redeemer, as God himself come in the flesh, as uh, the resurrected one, killed by Rome. Now, that's a big deal to them because that was the reality of their world. We realized that it was God that caused the death. It was, and it was, it was Jesus who sacrificially gave his life. So when you come to Romans, the book of Romans, Paul's laying out a case for Christianity and the need for Christ for all mankind, both Jew and Gentile. Um, in the first three chapters, he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles being separated from God. He talks about that that in the very beginning of time that that um, all men were created as sinners. Um, for, I think for many of us, if we know the Romans Road plan of salvation, we know that Romans 3.23 is one of those key verses. Anybody know what it says? For all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Everyone is a sinner. Everybody sitting in this room is a sinner. Everyone that you know is a sinner. All the people you pass on the road that you don't know are sinners. Everyone has sinned. Romans 3.10 says that they're none righteous. That defines what sin is. It's not rising to the standard of God's righteousness. The world around us, most of the people we know, if you talk to someone who doesn't know Christ, what they'll do is make excuses for their sin. I'm not as bad as somebody else. You know, I know people that are worse. There are people, I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm better than I used to be. And, and so we, we gauge sin against others. God tells us that the only gauge that matters is against Him. And He is perfect and holy. And so our standard of reference we must be perfect like God. And since none of us are perfect like God, he gave us the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments can, you can have a conversation with anybody you want. And in about those 
And in those Ten Commandments, you can show anyone you want to that will be honest with you that they have failed God's standard. Therefore, they're a sinner. And that doesn't make them worse than anybody else. It makes them like everybody else. And so he talks about it from the, from the Gentile version and from the Jewish side. He talks to them just because the Jews, by this time the Jews thought they had it all because they were God's chosen people because of Abraham. But he said, you're sinners just like the Gentiles. We're all sinners. Um, he goes on to, in, in Romans 4 and 5, he begins to talk about how we turn this around. How does this change? It changes by faith. Talks about Abraham. Talks about Abraham's faith. He, he com again, com compares the Jews and the Gentiles, and he, he makes sure that everyone is included. And he makes sure the Jews understand that they're not better because they're Jews. That Abraham's, what made him stand right before God was his faith. Just like your faith makes you stand right before God. It is faith that moves us. Um, in Romans chapter 6, he talks about the penalty of sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned. Well, if we've all sinned, what's the penalty for that? Death. The wages, the, the, what you earn for being a sinner is death. And, and it's spiritual death. Not only physical death, not only do we die in this, this life, some of us are getting closer than we used to. By the way, Jamie, that Psalm, the Psalm 103 that you read this morning, I used at a funeral yesterday. I did a funeral yesterday. It was, I don't know if they thought it was good, but I thought it was great. <laughs> but it was, uh, I used that, that very passage uh, to try to encourage them that even in great turmoil and trial, that God is with us, even when we feel like he's not. Um, so, so this penalty for death, and, and, and it also tells us that, that God paid the debt for us in his sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah, who gave himself for us, and that he freely gives us access to him. He talks about, in, in chapter 7, he talks about the law and how it cannot redeem us. It is a, it's a master above us. It is a, it puts us in slavery because you can't maintain it. You can't walk out those commandments that God gave. He talks about in chapter 8 what it's like to live in the spirit, to be have no condemnation, be free from the penalty, and how we ought to walk in the spirit. In Romans 9 and 10, he, he travels back to talking about Israel, and he, and he wants to remind Israel that they have not been totally thrown away. Even though he is now working with the Gentile people, he has not abandoned Israel. That they are his first love, and there will be a remnant from Israel that will be saved because of their faith, not because of their heritage. And then he comes to Romans 11. And he talks about the fact that because he is gracious to all, we should all rejoice and submit to his authority. So when you come to the end of chapter 11 of 
Romans, in verse 28, says the Jews refuse to accept the good news. So they're God's enemies. This has happened to help you who are not Jews. But they are still God's chosen people. He loves them because of the promises he made to their ancestors. God never changes his mind about the people he calls. He never decides to take back the blessings he has given them. Drop down to verse 33 and he says, Yes, God's riches are very great. His wisdom and knowledge have no end. No one can explain what God decides. No one can understand his ways. As the scripture says, Who can know what is on the Lord's mind? Who is able to give him advice? That's in Isaiah. What he's saying is, How can we fully comprehend who God is? And the, and the ways that God moves in. And then verse 35, he quotes in Job, he said, Who has ever given God anything? God owes nothing to anyone. God is so much wiser than all of us. God's great, grand scheme and plans, uh, his, his knowledge and his understanding, we can't comprehend. We're human. And on top of that, he doesn't owe us anything. We've not added to who he is. And yet, because he is this grand and great and glorious God who does not owe us anything, it makes everything he gives us mean so much more. Verse 36, he says, Yes, God made all things, and everything continues through him and for him. To God be glory forever. Amen. It's all about God. It's not about us. And then he says this. So, that's the reason why I... Let all this up. Because you need to understand 12, 1 and 2 is a response to who God is and what he's done for us. So, I beg you, Paul says, brothers and sisters. Now Paul's defining who he's talking to. He's not just talking to Jews and Gentiles who he's been talking to. He's talking to those who have received the grace that God has given. Those who have been called by God's grace. Those who have by faith walked into this relationship with God the Father. So I beg you, brothers and sisters, because of the great mercy God has shown us, offer your lives as a living sacrifice to Him. An offering that is only for God and pleasing to Him. Considering what He has done, it is only right that you should worship him in this way. Don't change yourselves to be like the people of the world, but let God change you inside with a new way of thinking. Then you will be able to understand and accept what God wants for you. You want to know how you're going to learn what God wants? You want to know how you're going to learn to understand God? It's by simply not letting the world change you and letting him change you into his way of thinking. You're never going to get there otherwise. That's the big word we call sanctification in scripture. It's the process of him growing you. You will be able to know what is good and what is pleasing to him and what is perfect. You'll know how to live in his presence. He tells us that we ought to be obedient out of gratitude and love. 
Now, I, I just want you to stop here for a minute. We're getting to where we're going. What we've got to say today is small compared to the lead-up. But it's important we get the lead-up. Okay? I want you to think about your life today. Do you call yourself a believer? Do you consider yourself a disciple? Now, I, I actually believe those are two different terms. Believer, I think a believer is someone who has accepted Christ as Savior, and a disciple is someone who is following Christ actively, pursuing Him. Now, you may disagree with those, and that's okay. That's my definitions of defining them, so you'll know. Do you call yourself a believer? Do you believe yourself to be a disciple? follower, someone who is actively pursuing the life of Christ in your life. See, there's I've been a believer since I was young. I haven't always been a disciple. There have been periods of times in my life when I have not been pursuing the life of Christ. He says... In these verses, that how we live out our daily routine ought to be impacted by the truth that we've been born again. It's not just, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. For years, that was my life. I've been born again, I'm on my way to heaven. Life's good or life's bad. Sometimes life's indifferent, like we talked about earlier this morning. But according to these verses, that's not the way we should live. According to these verses, our lives should be all about considering what He has done for us. We should worship Him by not allowing the world to impact us. Don't change yourselves to be like the people of the world. You, you understand that what he's saying is that means we've got to make an active effort. We've been changed by the Holy Spirit. We've been given new life. Now we have to begin to go back and act like the world if we're going to do that. That's an effort on our part. Now it's an easy effort. It's like muscle memory <laughs> because, because we're used to knowing how to sin and how to live like the world. But he said, that's not what's been put in us. He said, but let God change you inside with a new way of thinking. How's your thinking? Do you have stinking thinking sometimes? How, how's your thinking about yourself? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself the way the word of God says you are? <clears throat> or do you often see yourself the way the world says you are? Well, again, change your, allow God to change your way of thinking. How do you think about others? Do you think about others the way the world thinks about others? Do you look at the color of someone's skin? Do you look at the 
maybe the country they came from, their origin of birth, their, their religious historical background. We have a lot of people in this country that find it easy to be prejudiced against someone that's not like them. That's the nature of humanity. Um, I was watching something this last week talking about Irish Americans, which I am. <clears throat> my, my, most of my, my bloodline comes through England, Ireland, that area. And there was a point in time in this country when if you were an Irish American, you were treated terrible. Great prejudice. They would put ads in the paper and they would put all this stuff they needed and at the bottom they put Irish need not apply. And we don't think about that today. But I guarantee you, if we could get away with it, not we, but if the world could get away with it, in the last 20 years in this country, you could just put Muslim need not apply. Because we're prejudiced about what happened in our country. It prejudiced us. It, it caused us to be prejudiced. I don't know how to say that other way. It caused us to be prejudiced towards people that had a certain background. Everybody in, in the room knows that we've been fighting a, a color barrier in this country since this country was formed. There's a battle line between people of color, and I'm not just going to say black, but people of any color, brown and black and white. There's a, there's a clash. But it shouldn't be that way in the body. It shouldn't be that way in the church. And that's what he's telling us. We can't let those things impact us in the church. And then he goes on to talk about how we're to live out this worship. In verses 3 through, I guess, 8, Paul talks in verses 3 about his gift that he's been given. And then he talks about the gifts that are given to all of us. And, and he talks about how we should live out these gifts. And how they should impact the church. And how they should impact the world. How what God has put in you ought to make a difference in here. And how what God has put in you ought to make a difference out there. Because I know so many of us that have no idea what our gift is. You, you just, okay, I'm saved. I don't know what God wants to do with me. But Paul declares in verses 3 through 8 that you should know. And you should seek out to know. And that it's important that we all have these gifts and that they impact one another. He says in verse 6, we all have different gifts. Each gift came because of the grace of God gave us. And then he goes on to list these gifts. And he says, whoever has the gift... Uh, wait a minute. Uh, where is it? Oh, he's, that, he doesn't say it there. It says it somewhere else. It just says that we ought to all be doing these gifts. They, these things come to us so that we can bless the body. That's in verse um, 4 and 5. So that we can bless the body. And he lists different gifts here. He lists gifts of prophecy, gifts of serving, 
gifts of teaching, gifts of comfort. Um, he lists these gifts, and there's gifts, other gifts listed in other places that Paul writes. But do you know what it is God's crafted you to be and to do? And how that's to play out. How that's to work out in your life. And are you pursuing that? Because that's how you worship God. That's all this is leading up to. And then he comes to verse number 9 and 10. I want you to listen to what he says. Based on all this that we've led up to. Your love must be real. Hate what is evil. Do what is good. Love each other in a way that makes you feel close like brothers and sisters. And give each other more honor than you give yourselves. As you serve the Lord, don't be lazy. You ever thought about that? As you serve the Lord, work hard and don't be lazy. As you're serving God with the gift that He has given you, are you working at it? Pursuing it? I want to talk about these two verses just a little bit. Because if we're going to love one another, then that means that you've got to be pursuing what it is God's gifted you to do. And within that, you've got to be showing love in how you do it. Love and prophecy. Prophets are typically black and white people. Yet you ever know anybody that did? They just see it as black and white. There is no gray. You're either right or wrong. Sam's got a little bit of that. Doesn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you got but you gotta learn to do that in love. And that's one of the things I think Sam's been learning. I, I'm you know, one of the things I've talked to him about, one of the things I love about Sam is that Sam can be hard sometimes. But if you listen to what Sam says, you listen to the heart behind what Sam says, he loves the people. Now, sometimes he he, he gets himself in front of himself, but but he's working at it. And I know that. You know, prophets can be that. Um, people who have gifts of mercy, they're just the opposite. They'll listen to anything. They'll do anything. They'll go. They'll get run slap over. They'll they'll be foolish in how they care for people sometimes because they're overly empathetic to somebody's problem. And there's got to be some balance to that. That's why you have to have some Sams to balance it out. You got to have some people to balance Sam out. You, you got to have those in the body. And if both aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, then you get out of balance in a church, in a body. It's important that we do it all together. So, you know what a maxim is? Anybody know what a maxim is? Um, how to describe a maxim? I, I have a hard time trying to describe one, but I can, I can give you one. Um, um, let me see if I can if I can maybe, maybe I can describe it it's a short statement 
that's emphatic in its point. Okay? That's kind of what Paul does here in this writing. These next, if you were to read through this, you'd find these little short statements that he makes that are very emphatic and to a point. Um, your love must be real. Period. Short, emphatic statement. Your love must be real. Must be genuine. Not false. Not a hypocrite. That's the word Jesus used a lot in Scripture. Your love must be real. I want you to listen to these, these verses. I, I just This was just something I copied off of the computer that literally just a few, just one page of pages of stuff that, that Jesus said of hypocrites. Okay? Yeah. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, for you don't go in and you won't allow others to go in. Because you ain't getting it, you ain't letting nobody else go. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses and make long prayers for show. That's why you're going to receive a harsher punishment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte, but when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. That'll, that'll bite you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of dill and mint and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Yeah, you'll do the little stuff. You'll give, you give a, a one out of ten mint leaves, but you're not going to pay attention to mercy and justice and faith. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside... They're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're going to make it look good, but you're empty. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and every impurity. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. You just build up empty places. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you don't see the log in your own eye? Hypocrite! First take the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. What he's saying here is there's no real genuine love. It's all about me. It's not about you. That verse that we're using as our memory verse tells us that we ought to show more honor to others than we show to ourselves. Our love must be genuine. Anybody know what the love passage in Scripture is? 1 Corinthians 13. First <laughs> message I ever preached here was out of 1 Corinthians 13. Absolutely. Um, it's actually 4 through 8a is what we're going to use today, but, but you're right at it. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, verse number 4, 
says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not proud. Love is not rude. It is not selfish. It, does, it cannot be made angry easily. Love does not remember wrongs done against it. Love is never happy when others do wrong, but is always happy with the truth. Love never gives up on people, never stops trusting, never loses hope, never quits. Love will never end. Love. Real, genuine love doesn't look like the world says, does it? Now I want you to just think about this. I'm going to go through it a little slower. Love is not jealous. One of the first things you find out in the world is people are jealous of theirs. This is mine. Real love isn't jealous. It doesn't brag. Real, genuine love is not proud. It's not rude or selfish. I want you to start thinking about the love that you have for one another in the church. Is your love selfish? No, I really don't like that particular style of song. I don't really like the fact that a preacher sits on the floor instead of stands up and preaches. I don't like that version. I, I'm not, and those are not things that I've heard anything about. I'm just trying to think of things off the top of my head that I know people say. Hopefully not here. It's not easily made angry. Man. I was thinking the other day about how easily I can get ticked off at people. I told y'all the other day about sitting at a red light, I think. Some guy came up behind me and honks my horn, honks the horn at me, wanted me to pull up, and there's nowhere to go. And I mean, I got angry. I wanted to get out of the car angry. There's some of that Sam right there. Yeah, some of that Sam right there. I want to be, I want to be black and white with him. <laughs> But wait a minute, if I really love lost people, and I'm going to assume he was lost by his behavior, but then again, he probably could assume I was lost by mine. He may have been a preacher too, I don't know. But if we're really going to love lost people, we've got to learn not to get angry easily. Now, it doesn't say you don't get angry, just not easily. How about this? It isn't happy when people do wrong things. The world's love embraces that. It's always happy with the truth. Real love is always happy with the truth. How happy are you with the truth sometimes? Real love never gives up on people Never stops trusting. It doesn't say people. Just never stop trusting. Never loses hope. Sometimes I don't trust people, but I trust God. Love never quits, and it never, ever, ever ends. How does the world say love is? Love's fleeting. It comes and goes. But real, genuine love of God is not fleeting either. Thank you, Jesus, that your love isn't like my love. 
So our love has got to be genuine if we're going to be able to do this thing that God's called us to do. It, it has to, it, and, and it, I love how this talks about emotion and action. Look at, look at the second part of the verse. It says, hate what is evil, do only what is good. Hate is an emotion. Detest the wrong thing. Do you detest evil? Do you? Okay. Let me ask you this. How does the way you think about evil affect you and what you do and say on a daily basis? Do you embrace evil things? How does this... Let me ask you, how does it affect your viewing habits? What you watch? What you do? How does... It affects your choices every day. The choices you make. Are they passionately about good? Or do they tend to lean towards some evil things? Now, and here's the thing. Most of us want to run to this idea that no, we don't love evil things. Let's compare what we say is evil with what God says is evil. Now, let, me, let me just pick up. I, I'm going to, y'all know my bent towards politics. So let me pick on the culture that we're in today. How much of the last six months have you focused on good? And not evil. You say, well, yeah, well, I'm focused on that guy. He's good. Really? Are you sure? Are you open to saying what that guy, whoever your guy is, has evil in his life as well? Do you whitewash some of that so that you can have what you want in this world? How about your news coverage? I don't watch much news these days because most of them are bent one way or the other towards their political leaning. Now you can watch a little bit of it, but you got to kind of cut it off after a while. Get the information and then let it speak for itself. Because if you're not careful, what it does is it bends you towards things that are not right. Do you believe lies? Do you embrace lies? Or you prefer sometimes lies in life? I'd much prefer somebody lying to me and telling me how nice I am than walking up to me and saying, man, you're really being a horse's tail today. But what's better for me? Somebody saying to me, you know, your, your attitude really stinks today. You need to kind of rein that thing in. Is that the way Christ would behave? 
what happens, what he's saying is, if you don't learn to control your emotions under the Spirit of God, chapter 8, your actions aren't going to be good actions. Because what moves you to action is what you think on and what you believe. The Scripture's clear. You do what you think and believe. That's why he says to think on things that are good and pure and lovely. If you take that passage that we're talking about, all those are the character qualities of Christ. Your love's got to be genuine. You have to have your emotion under the control of the Spirit of God so that your actions reflect that. Why? Because we're exampling Christ, are we not? How many people look at you and make a determination of what Jesus is like based on what they see in you? How many people make a determination of what our church is like because of what they see in you and me? Because they don't know Jesus. Are we reflecting as Jesus tells us to? In verse number 10, he says, for us to love like family. And that's the hard part of this for me because like I said earlier, I don't, my mom and dad are gone. My sister and I are close but not close. I mean, I love her, and, and we don't have a bad relationship, but we're not. Some, some of y'all have really close family. My family's close. We do a lot of stuff together, but sometimes we're distant in the same room. You know, one of the things I don't like about me is that I can be very distant from people. I have to work at it. Because I think it's important that we be that way. We be connected. Um, here, here's some things that I think will help you in loving like family. Number one, remember that you're born of the same parent. If someone in this room says they're a believer, you got the same dad. That literally, that passage really literally says you're born of the same womb. You were birthed out of the same place. You're my family. We have the same blood flowing in us. We are together. If we're gonna if we're gonna love like family, we have to do it the way God did it. We have to be devoted to one another by choice. The Bible says that God chose you, didn't he? You were chosen before the foundation of the earth was ever laid in place. God chose you to love you. Have you always been worthy of that love? I certainly haven't. Are, are any of us deserving of his love? None of us are. We've established that already back in the centers. But he by choice loves us. 
Because of that, we should live the way he lives. With the, if we have the same bloodline from him now, we have an opportunity to love the way he loved. Let me tell you what Jesus said about this in a real practical way. Jesus, is, Jesus was with his disciples. He was teaching in a house. And the Bible says that then Jesus' mother and brothers came. And they stood outside and they sent someone to get him to come out. Many people were sitting around Jesus and they said to him, your mom and your brothers and your sisters, they're waiting for you outside. People he was born by. He was physically born of Mary. Mary, Mary of all people, is outside. James, the brother of Christ, and his other brothers and sisters, they're outside waiting on him. And this is what Jesus said. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at the people sitting around him and said, These people. These people are my mother and my brothers. My true brother and sister and mother are those who do what God wants. Jesus said, for those that are followers of Christ, who are seeking after a life of discipleship, a life of surrender, that's my family. And that's who I'm sticking by and sticking with. That's what Jesus said. Should that not be who we pour our lives into? Not just a Sunday morning come together, Tuesday morning have a Bible study, get, we ought to be poured into one another. Love like family. Be devoted by choice. And the last thing I think that will help us in that is for us to show very conspicuous and extroverted love towards one another. I mean, it needs to be obvious. It needs to be obvious that I love Charles Bland. And the way I do that is not just by what I say to him, but how I act towards him. The things I do for him and for his family. The sacrifices that I'll make when he needs it, because I can. How do I know that's what this love ought to be? Somebody remember our memory verse for last month? John 13.34 says what? I give you a new command. Love one another. You must love one another just like I loved you. Anybody have any idea what 35 says? We didn't, we didn't put that in there last month. You know what it says, Jane? Love your neighbor. Do what? Love your neighbor. No, ma'am. That's not that one. That's no. You know what he says in verse thirty-five? That's how they will know you are mine because you love one another. You want to be a witness for Christ. You want to live out. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You have to tell the gospel. You have to proclaim the gospel. You can't just always hope people see in you that evidence. 
But just like the hypocrites said stuff and had no genuine love behind it, it was obvious to everyone around them it wasn't real. So if you're going to tell people that Jesus is the Christ, if you're going to tell people that you've been born again by the Spirit of God, if you're going to tell people you're a member of Fresh Start Fellowship, if you're going to tell people that you love God, the only way they're going to believe it and see it and know it is when they watch you loving the body in an extravagant way. In a sacrificial way. I don't want to do that. Do it anyway. I don't have time for that. It it inconveniences me. Good. One of the things we've been trying to do lately is read scripture. One of the things I hope you're doing is following along in our reading plan. But more importantly, I hope that it's giving you a hunger to read the Word. Have you ever read the New Testament? Really read the New Testament? Just, just started Matthew, read through the New Testament. Let me challenge you with something. Um, this is a challenge that I'm, and this, this is off the beaten path, but I want to challenge you with something. We talked last week about, uh, for Lent this year, maybe finding something to give up, some way to, to, to focus on the Lord. What would you think about maybe taking as a challenge for the six weeks of Lent you try to read through the New Testament? Now I'm going to go ahead and tell y'all, I haven't, and we don't normally do this, and I'm not normally, Mark and I talk to each other about it, told each other accountable, but I want to tell y'all what the Lord put on my heart to do. Now I don't know if I'll make it or not, but he put on my heart to read through Genesis to Revelation in the six weeks of Lent. Am I willing to give up the time sitting in front of the TV doing whatever I want to do for me? That's six weeks. I mean, it's not like TV shows that I watch are going to go away. They're all reruns anyway. Am I willing to do that? And I'm putting it out there to y'all because I want to be a little more accountable than just Mark. I don't know if I'll make it or not, but I'm going to make an effort at it. But here's my point. If you really read the New Testament, what you find out is there was something so different about the believers of the first century. They lived different than we live today. They were dependent on one another. They didn't have the government to take care of them. I think the government should help take care of people. I don't think that that's not a part of governmental authority. I think it's good when government helps people that need help. But they didn't have that. They were only dependent on each other. In fact, the government was against them. Guess what, folks? It's coming. They're going to turn on us. We better be dependent on each other. We better learn how to love. They had no other family than each other. Many times their family turned against them when they accepted Christ. 
They were hunted. They were labeled as outlaws. They hid in caverns and caves, cemeteries. They gathered together dark, damp places because that's places people wouldn't go. Why? Because they loved each other so extravagantly. They did for each other in such extravagant ways. Let me tell you what y'all did last week. Let me tell you what this church did last week. We met a need of over $2,000 that somebody had. Almost double that need. That was you loving sacrificially. For some it wasn't a sacrifice. For others it was. But you were obedient. That is ought to be the norm for the church. Not me paying all your bills and you paying all my bills. But if you have a need and I have it, me giving it to you open-handed and glad to do it. That ought to be the way we live in the body of Christ. If we live like that, there wouldn't be empty seats in these chairs today. Because people would want to come and see what is happening in a place where people love each other so genuinely. Because they would want what that love is producing. Now i got to tell you that once they hear the sacrifice part on their own, many will turn away. Many turned away from Jesus. I mean, how could you walk away from Jesus? And yet the Bible is clear that oftentimes when he went ahead with the hard parts, not the receiving, but the giving, they left. But folks, we ought to be living in such a way that love flows out of us so genuinely that the world around us marvels at Christ in us. That's what loving like a brother and sister. Listen, I, my goal, my prayer for this year is that I will begin to love you guys like family. I love you all. I don't love you like that. And I should. I want to. By the power of the Holy Spirit within me, I believe that's possible. And I believe it's possible in Jesus. Father, thank you for a challenge to love one another like family. Lord, help us to be so surrendered to you, so abandoned from this world to the cross. we find our greatest affection in the body of Christ. Lord, give us a passion to know the gifts that you've placed in us and how we can use them to strengthen the body, to honor you, that our worship before you might be glorious 
in your sight. Lord, I pray that you would bless this message this week as we try to walk out what it is you have called us to do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, I have a note from my wife today. There is a table right back there on the back behind this link.